and a quarter mile. Turn left. Whenever I'm given the opportunity to meet someone in person, I always take it. Because as much as I love the objects and the people connected to them, I'm also fascinated by the places a tangible thing can take us. Turn left, then turn left. I don't know that I've been here before. Really? That's not familiar to me at all. Where will a pair of wooden skis take us? Turn left, then you will arrive at your destination. Like so Jurassic Parkish. Okay. Let's do this. Hello. 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 This is the historical investigative podcast about people, objects, and their stories. I'm your host, Thatcher Warkess. Episode 11, Skis, Scandinavia, Safari. We begin the story in the small airport of Traverse City, Michigan. It's a cool, artsy city in northern Michigan, close to where some of my family lives. I bought a pair of wooden skis online from a store in Traverse City. It was called Antiquities Warehouse. I came here to talk to Lisa, the store owner, about how she came across the pair of beat-up skis. She explained to me that she got them at a moving sale a couple years ago. The man who was selling them said that these belonged to his grandfather. But since it was a moving sale, she has no way to contact that person. I did go looking around for the Michigan man's family, but I had no names and therefore dropped the search. The only thing I knew was that these tall skis were well used by his grandfather. They're solid heavy wood covered with a tan gold finish and scratched up on the bottom and top. On the left ski, there are even some drips of white house paint. If only these skis could talk. Every scar here tells a story. Uh, the skis, they were very high quality skis at the time. Of course, all skis were wooden in those days. This is Seth Mejia, the president of the International Skiing History Association, speaking to me from Colorado. When I first sent my email around to some skiing magazines, almost everyone pointed me in Mr. Mejia's direction. We're talking on Zoom here. He is the first guest to have a prepared background screen. A group of skiers is getting ready atop a snow-capped mountain range. Seth himself looks like he just got off the slopes. He's wearing a ski jacket and fleece. He has windswept gray hair and a radiant smile, showing teeth that are almost as white as the snow in his backdrop. I believe this, your skis are hickory. Uh, there was a lot of hand labor that went into assembling them, carving them to shape, bending them to shape. The skis are really tall. When I stand them up, they tower over me by more than a foot. They're 83 inches tall, just shy of seven feet. They are very rustic. That golden color on the top fooled me. When I bought these originally, I thought that they were rusted metal. The only thing that's metal are the bindings, the contraption to fasten your foot in. And they're mounted with uh, a knockoff of the Kandahar binding manufactured by the Northland Ski Company of St. Paul, Minnesota. 
They look really funky. There's a small leather loop held together by a metal structure for the toe boot of the skier. What makes this unique is actually the heel release. The heel was held down by a steel cable that was tensioned by a lever in front of the toe unit. This form of binding was the first one that locked the heel down. So this binding is associated with the origin of what we would call alpine skiing. We had originally guessed that these skis were made in the 1930s. The thing is, is that these skis are a mixture of different makers. Northland made the bindings, but someone else made the skis. I remembered one day I laid the skis down to measure them, and I saw two names. One of them was punched into the wood. It was the maker's mark on the underside top nose of the skis. It read, Groswald Ski Company Incorporation, Denver, Colorado. The skis were manufactured in Denver, Colorado in the late 30s by uh, a Norwegian immigrant named Thor C. Groswald. Thor Groswald was born in Kongsberg, Norway in 1895. Groswald himself was an interesting character. He was, uh, he was an athlete. Some of the greatest ski jumpers of all time came from Kongsberg. So Roswald came to the U.S. and came to Denver to study business. This was in 1923, and after winning ski jumping competitions with his wife, who was also a very good Norwegian skier, he realized that something needed to change with the state of skiing in America. Because in the 1920s, skiing was pretty abysmal in the United States. There were no real guidelines, teachings, or methods. Some earlier skiers remember how dangerous it really was. Thor Groswald decided to take action. He was talked into making some skis by some of his friends in Denver, and that blossomed into quite a successful business. In 1932, Thor Groswald decided to start his own ski-making factory business. For the next 20 years, they were one of the best small skiing companies in America. But by the mid-30s, there was competition. A Northland, by the way, was the largest ski factory in North America at the time. So they competed directly with Groswald. Groswald didn't make their own binding. So people who bought Groswald skis would get bindings from another manufacturer. That would explain why these bindings were here. It is interesting to see the business rivalry of two brands on the same ski. The other reason Northland and Groswald competed is because they were both from Norway. Northland and the, and the other factories in the upper Midwest were founded by Norwegian immigrants back in the early part of the century. A lot of big ski factories in Europe started because the family had been making carts and knew how to work in hardwood. They had the tools and expertise to make things out of ash and hickory, oak and other hardwoods. So companies that made handles for tools, hickory axe handles, hammer handles, um, rakes, hose, scythes, farming implements could easily get into um, making skis. These European factory makers in the 1910s and 20s realized that it was cheaper economically to get the right wood if the factories were in America. The best skis in the world during the first half of the 20th century were made of hickory. And there was only one source for hickory and it was Louisiana. It was very, very expensive to import hickory um, to Norway and Sweden. So Norwegians would come to the United States where they could get hickory a lot cheaper and set up factories in Minnesota and Wisconsin. By the 1930s, Thor Groswald took this business model perfectly and made the best skis he could. Their quality of ski design, carving, and construction set them apart and reached a more niche audience. Many professional and well-respected skiers lauded the Groswald skis and would promote them in ads. But the Groswald company had to shut down with the emergence of metal skis. The factory went under around 1952 when metal skis started 
coming into vogue. And by 1952, it was pretty clear that any ski factory that wanted to survive was going to have to get enough capital. And Groswold was a small company, and uh, that, that wasn't going to happen. The Groswold company has since reopened and is now run by Thor's granddaughter, Carol Ann. But they only sell ski jackets and hats. The same thing happened with the Northland company, who made the bindings on my skis. I emailed their current president, who didn't know much history after their 49-year company shut down. You know, what happens is these factories go away and nobody thinks about it. And then many, many years later, the nostalgia value of the brand begins to look valuable. Even though these Groswold skis aren't necessarily rare, I looked at them in a new light when Seth told me he actually knew Thor's sons. The older son was Thor B. Groswold, and the younger son was uh, Jerry. They were both good skiers when they were young. They were both competitors. And Jerry became uh, quite an important executive in the ski resort business. He was the president and CEO of Winter Park Resort for many years. You couldn't grow up around a person like my dad without adopting some part of his infectious enthusiasm for what he was doing. This is Jerry Groswold from 2005 talking about his father, Thor Groswold, as he stands in front of the Winter Park Ski Resort in Colorado. The basic lesson my dad taught me was uh, that skiing is a sport, it's also a business. And he operated on the premise that, that you never took from skiing, that there was always a debt and that debt needed to be repaid, so you had to put back more than you took. There are relatively few people who get to earn their living in a sport that they love, working in an environment that they love, with people that they love. It's a business that basically is a business of sharing. And it was this business model of sharing that Jerry implemented as the president for the Winter Park Ski Resort for over 20 years. But Jerry Groswald just passed away in 2015. Do you remember when I said I saw two names on the skis? The other one glistened as I set it down in the sunlight. It was a cursive gold-branded name on the top side of the right ski. Otto Lang. Grossfeld did this with a number of famous skiers, especially important racers of the era. People would buy an Otto Lang signature model ski the way kids would buy a baseball glove or an Arnold Palmer golf club. So these were signature skis contracted by the Groswold company to promote certain skiers. Groswold made skis with Dick Durrance, Friedel Pfeiffer, Otto Schneebs, and Otto Lang, all famous skiers in the 1930s. I wanted to know everything about Otto Lang. Otto was an Austrian ski instructor who came to the United States in the early 30s. Then Seth hit me with a bombshell when he said this. I knew Otto when he was in his 80s and 90s. I got to ski with him. That's right. The Otto Lang skier, whose name was promoted on these skis. Seth tells me the story of skiing with him in the 90s. He was a little guy. He was about 5'6 or 5'7. Very muscular and agile. When I skied with him, he was 92 years old. He still got around quite well. He skied better than he walked at that point. And I went up and skied with him at Stevens Pass, which is one of the ski resorts east of Seattle, up in the Cascade Mountains. They got a huge amount of snow. He was still making beautiful, round, elegant turns. He's a fun guy to talk to. So Seth Mejia has actually met and skied with people connected by two names on these skis. Thor Groswald's sons and Otto Lang himself. If anyone is truly the glue of these two stories, it's Seth Mejia. I'm, I'm very lucky that I got involved with skiing at the time I did because I had the chance to meet some of these pioneers people who, who got skiing started as a sport and business in the 30s. 
I was actually kind of obsessed with Otto Lang's story. He was a man of many talents and passions. In my research, I realized that after running some ski schools in the United States, he turned to Hollywood as a director and producer. I also saw that Otto Lang wrote two books about his life. That's actually one of the reasons Otto met with Seth Mesha. One of the reasons I met with him was that he wanted me to read the manuscript of his memoirs, which was great fun. It was later published as a book called uh, Bird of Passage. I ordered the book online. Although I love to watch documentaries more than reading autobiographies, I decided to give the book a chance. I read the 463-page book and honestly was blown away. First off, to my luck, I was ordered a signed copy. Otto Lang's signature and a best wishes stared me down on the first page. Then, on the next page, I saw a blurb Seth Mesha wrote about the book. There is not something in his life that he doesn't mention in Bird of Passage, from early childhood all the way to 1994 when the book came out. In a quarter mile, turn left. Otto describes his marriage with Cindy Gannon, a daughter of a Navy captain, and his two sons, Peter and Mark. Throughout the book, he has pages of family and skiing pictures. Turn left, then turn left. I don't know that I've been here before. Really? It doesn't look familiar to me at all. I shed a couple of tears and laughed out loud as I followed this family on a journey in the book, from the Austrian Alps to Hollywood, then to Idaho, but nothing prepared me for what I saw on page 298. So. Turn left, then you will arrive at your destination. Wow, this is like so Jurassic Parkish. Otto Lang's older son, Peter, was the co-owner and president of Safari West, an African animal park that I went to as a kid. Okay. Let's do this. You're Aphrodite? Yes. Hi, nice to finally meet you. I had sent a letter to Peter Lang in February of this year, and after months of no response, I contacted his agent, Aphrodite. But the interesting thing was that before she could tell Peter I wanted to do an interview, he had already read my letter. So he called me and we set a time to meet at Safari West in Santa Rosa, California. Oh, hi, me too. Ben. This is my dad here. Yeah. I actually drove down here with my dad who not only has been doing corporate video for like 30 years, but started his own podcast. So he helped me out with the recording side of Peter Lang's interview. Hello. 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 How are you? Thatcher. Nice to meet you. Good to see you. This is my dad. A tall, lean man walks into the room. He has this calm and yet important presence when he strides in the living room of their home ranch. I didn't expect this man, who I guess is almost as tall as the seven-foot skis, to be the son of the small-built Otto Lang. So yeah, Thank you, so you much. guys want to be inside or outside? My name is Peter Lang. I own a company called Safari West, which is an African animal and wildlife park. And the reason you're here is because of my father, Otto Lang. We decided to take a seat inside the original ranch house in the middle of the Safari West Park. So there are free-ranging guinea fowls and people squawking around the fenced-in property. I think we have 30 species of African mammals and probably another 30, 40 species of birds. Now, Safari West is 400 acres of free open terrain for African animals. But it started very small in the mid-80s when he bought it as a cattle ranch. We started this as a business 30 years ago. And my wife and I were married in the Bahamas and we came back here and um, had a you know, a little reception. Peter Lang married a raptor and bird specialist named Nancy in 1992. 
we did have a reception, saw, saw how much pleasure zoo professionals were getting out of it. And I said to Nancy, you know, Nancy, I'm either going to have to go back to work and do something gainful, or let's open Safari West to the public. This reception was in March of 1993, and it was finally open to the public on the 4th of July of the same year. Since then, Safari West has been rated one of the best African animal parks in the country. You know, we're part of the American Zoo Association, which is 225 accredited zoos in the United States. About 220 of them are nonprofit, not self-supporting, heavily endowed. Disney, Six Flags, SeaWorld, Peter Lang. We're the ones that operate for a profit. The reason why Safari West stands out as a top-rated animal park is because of their ethical business model guidelines. What we do with our animals out on pasture and in open enclosures and mixed species and mixed herds and getting everything to get along with each other, it's unlike a zoo where there's a pair of this and a pair of that and a wall between them. We are very much akin to going on a morning game drive or an afternoon game drive in the Maasai Mara. So I went to Safari West when I was like 10, around the year 2007. I went with my mom and my sister, and honestly, I still remember my one night there. It was an experience that I will never forget. A wave of nostalgia hits me when he describes the tour guide at drives. I mean, we're out for three hours, uh, three and a half hours. You're with a guide in a vehicle. He's giving you the information you need to know, can answer all your questions. No, it's a real experience. It truly was. The one night I was there, after doing one of these tours in a 1950 Dodge Power Wagon, we stayed in our bungalow room in Safari West. I woke up in the morning to giraffes chewing on leaves, almost sticking their necks into the open window of the room. It was just surreal. Peter knew exactly where I stayed. You were in tent 19. <laughs> that's, that's the area where the giraffes can come up and yeah. look over the fence, and if you're on a deck, you're looking right at them. It feels even more surreal that I'm back here at Safari West, nearly 15 years later. I was still in the dark about the origin of these skis. Seth Mesha told me that he worked as a board of directors at the Colorado Ski Museum. And they have a big warehouse uh, where they keep hundreds of skis and boots and other artifacts uh, of skiing in the first half of the 20th century. I used to go in there to do research and, uh, and look at that old gear. And I had a chance, there were a lot of Grosswald skis there because of the proximity to the Colorado Grosswald factory. I emailed a historian at the Colorado Ski Museum, the same one that Seth worked at. She actually found original catalogs from Grosswald. These skis were from the 1940 to 41 collection. It had a picture of the exact ski, Number four, Otto Lang model, gold brand. Peter Lang was born in 1941, still remaining as Safari West's president at 81 years old. He doesn't look a day over 60, though. When he first called me a month before we met, he started by saying, I'm not really into the skis or anything like that. I just wasn't a part of that. Though what he said was true, I was more interested in the place and people it led me to, especially since it was a familiar place I went to as a kid. It is a full circle story that all started with a pair of wooden skis. How many degrees of separation is that? 
you know, you, I guess, read the name on the skis mm -hmm. and uh, started doing some research and yeah. that research led to your mom and your, you know, you remembered Safari West. Yeah. yeah. So it's not six degrees even. If you were a detective, you'd be very pleased with how quickly you made, <laughs> made yeah, the discovery. Yeah. I mean, he's right. Most people think the Obscura in the show's name is about the rarity of objects that no one has seen before. But in reality, it's the opposite. I want to find the unique people from ordinary objects and go on the journey of the places it takes me. One historian told me that the Griswold skis are like the Honda of ski manufacturers. These are not rare, but I honestly don't think that that's the point. I actually like its ubiquity and worn appeal. It shows that the object was rightfully used for a good number of the public. Since Peter was born in 1941, I mentioned to him that the skis were made in the same year. The man I'm sitting in front of and these skis are both in their 80s, connected by Otto Lang. Otto Lang was actually born in Yugoslavia, what is modern-day Bosnia and Herzegovina, in 1908. He was raised by his father Alfred, who was a fisherman, gymnast, and military academy graduate, and a Croatian mother, Olga, was a home cook. At a young age, he loved watching films and skiing on the Yugoslavian slopes. But growing up in a regimented Catholic household in an Austro-Hungarian-led Bosnia and Herzegovina was a challenge, especially when the Archduke was assassinated in Sarajevo, setting off the events to start World War I, less than 60 miles from Otto's hometown of Zenica. He was only six when the war broke out. Here is Seth again, the ski historian we heard earlier in the episode. After World War I, when the Austro-Hungarian Empire fell and was dismantled, the family moved back to Austria proper, where Otto became a gymnast and began his sporting career. His family moved to Salzburg, Austria, where he then decided to become an instructor for swimming and gymnastics. This was a kid, though, who loved anything sports-related. He skied, swam, did gymnastics like his father, and even was a goalkeeper for the senior Salzburg soccer team. By the late 1920s, his main dream was to work at the prestigious Hans Schneider Skiing School at St. Anton. Um, and he had come up through the Hannes Schneider Arlberg School in St. Anton, which was probably the best respected ski school in Europe. This was a small town tucked at the base of two giant mountains in the Austrian Alps. By 1928, at the age of 20, Otto was a certified skiing instructor. He then wrote a letter to Hans Schneider himself in 1930. He was elated when he got the job. Even in Europe, however, skiing was still in its infancy. Hans Schneider, an Austrian skier, knew this was the case and implemented a specific style of teaching. And it taught a specific type of ski teaching progression. The old-fashioned Arlberg teaching progression started with a snowplow to control your speed, and then went to a stem Christie, and then went to a parallel Christie. And it had the disadvantage that snowplowing is really a bad habit. You have to grow out of it in order to become an expert skier. Basically, it was the lowest common denominator teaching progression that could be mastered even by people who weren't very athletic. Even though the method is outdated these days, it was an easy progression for skiing basics at the time. Nearly a year after his arrival in America, he made instructional ski films with a photographer named Jerome Hill. And together, Otto and Jerome made a couple of really impressive instructional ski films and promotional ski films that were that went into general exhibition at movie theaters across the country, starting with Rockefeller Center. 
Well, let's see how the speed looks. This is the short instructional film Snow Flight he made with Jerome Hill in 1936. Now I'm going to put on the skins for climbing. The loop goes over the toe of the ski. You see these seal skins have a definite knack to them. A young Otto Lang in his late 20s puts on these seal skins that hook onto the top toe of the ski. They were called seal skins, but they could be made of any kind of fur. And the fur points backwards so you can climb up the hill. Later in the film, there's a wide shot of Otto slowly skiing down the slopes, teaching us every skiing progression. Otto tried other methods to teach future skiers. He wrote a skiing book as well. The film and his writing prowess got his name on the map. He even invented his own skiing poles. He introduced a line of steel ski poles at a time that everybody else was using bamboo. Here's Peter Lang, Otto's son, talking about his father's early skiing days. He started skiing in the Pacific Northwest. It didn't exist as, as a sport. And he developed a, a, a technique that he had learned in Europe, the Arlberg technique. No, he, he was a teacher. That's what he did. One of the reasons Otto opened up ski schools in America was because of the ski boom in 1936. Thousands of people from New England went to new ski resorts that filled up overnight. But skiing was becoming pretty sophisticated, both as a spectator sport and as a mass participation sport in the 30s. A new ski train was built that connected the big cities to ski resorts in the east and west coasts. Uh, it was becoming a real consumer market, um, both for lodging and transportation and for ski wear. It was becoming financially remunerative and economically significant. The ski lift was first put into the Sun Valley Ski Resort in 1936. By 1940, many new countries started skiing as a sport. 1931 was also when the International Ski Federation, which was dominated by the Norwegians and the Swedes, finally acknowledged the legitimacy of alpine skiing. And that's what led to alpine skiing becoming an Olympic sport in 1936. Otto Lang capitalized on this new influx of skiers by opening ski schools. By the end of 1936, Otto decided to open up his first skiing school in Seattle. It was the first official Hans Schneider ski school in America. I actually found many interviews of Otto Lang before he passed away in 2006, at the age of 98. Here is Otto from the early 1990s, talking about why he decided to open up his skiing schools. There was no ski school operating at Mount, Mount Rainier, nothing. And I saw this, this mass of skiers running into each other, practically killing each other, falling. And I said, well, this place needs a ski school. So I said, Paradise Inn would be the place. So Paradise Inn, which was a ski resort that opened in 1931, was Otto's first ski school. This was actually where he shot the short film Snowflight with Jerome Hill. In the following winters, he had opened up two more ski schools, one in Mount Baker, north of Seattle, and another in Mount Hood, Oregon. In the 1938-39 season, Otto met Cindy Gannon, whose maiden name was Sinclair in California, and soon got married in 1938. He then got called up to be the new director of the Sun Valley Ski Resort in Idaho. This was one of the best skiing resorts in the country, and this is where his first son Peter was born and grew up. Grew, grew up, you know, in Sun Valley, winter and spring, and then in Southern California in summer and fall. You know, when you're a young guy, you don't notice much about moving and it's not a big deal and yeah. you're not leaving girlfriends behind and lost loves and you know, you're just moving again. Yeah. And uh, it was fun growing up in Sun Valley. It was fun skiing there. They left Sun Valley around 1948 and moved to Beverly Hills, California. 
But this time was pivotal for Peter because his father made a decision. He staffed the ski schools with new instructors and started his Hollywood career. Peter would even join his father on set. All these, all these people that I would meet, Robert Wagner, Rory Calhoun, they, they were normal, they were just people. I mean, when I was a little boy, I remember Norma Shearer, who was one of the great stars of the silent film era. She married a ski instructor that had worked for my dad in Sun Valley. When I read Otto Lang's book, I was surprised how many people he met through skiing and filmmaking. Mobster Bugsy Siegel's girlfriend, President Gerald Ford, and later befriended Dr. Seuss. In Otto Lang's interviews and his books, he shares the origin stories of his first skiing and movie experiences. This is his first memory watching a film in Austria around 1920. There was, there was, no, there was only one movie theater in, in town. It was just a restaurant that was converted into a movie theater. It was strictly forbidden for us to go to a movie, see any kind of a movie. And I happened to know the projectionist, and he invited me to come up into his booth and, and look at the projection. I was absolutely flabbergasted and astounded. I thought it was the most incredible thing. That's my was my first encounter with movies, and, and it obviously made a very deep impression on me. Just to give you some context, Otto Lang started his Hollywood career around 1940, and it lasted until 1970. Some of the movies include Five Fingers and Tora Tora Tora, as a producer with 20th Century Fox. He has worked on TV titles such as Doctari, Cheyenne, and The Man From U.N.C.L.E. He worked with Jimmy Stewart, movie mogul Daryl Zanuck, and director Howard Hawks. He has four Academy Award nominations throughout his 30-year career. As a minor in film, in my undergrad studies, and the son of a filmmaker, I was shocked to learn that the movies I had to watch for school were produced by Otto Lang. As Peter mentioned though, the constant moving was hard for Otto in retrospect. There's quite a bit of guilt Otto holds as a father in his book, but in every other regard, Otto was just the kindest person. He really didn't have an ego, or an apparent ego. <laughs> but, uh, no, he was a good guy. Incredibly thoughtful, meticulous, and an intellectual, Otto Lang was a successful entrepreneur who excelled at being a producer, educator, and father. But during the 40s, right after Peter was born, he traveled a lot for his job. He took a trip to Yugoslavia with his wife, Cindy to visit his two sisters in 1939. But the war had just broken out. Hitler was invading Poland. There's much fear on this trip because Austria was a part of Hitler's Third Reich a year prior in 1938. So Otto had a German passport, which did not look good going into France. In a harrowing trek, calling delegates, embassies, and consulates, Otto Lang took the last Orient Express train to cross Yugoslavia until the war ended and made it out of Europe on a giant American luxury liner across the Atlantic. Otto tore up his passport as soon as he came to the United States and he became an American citizen before the U.S. joined the war. The 1940s was a troubling time for skiing with the geopolitical affairs of the Second World War. Many of Otto's skiing instructors and childhood friends had become Nazi sympathizers. Otto remembers the FBI raiding Sun Valley, trying to find Nazi spies. The ski schools and resorts in America had to shut down and turned into training grounds for soldiers. When the war settled down and Otto had the chance to make films abroad, he did so. There were many months that Peter and Mark would not see their dad. But after the war into the 50s, there was more time to travel and see family. Peter remembers meeting his grandparents, Otto's dad Alfred, in Yugoslavia. It was very interesting. My, my grandparents lived in very humble apartment. 
I had to take a funicular up to a castle on top of a cliff, and that's where he wanted to meet me. <laughs> he didn't want to meet me at, at home. Uh-huh. Yeah, and that, that I won't forget. This was in 1954, when Peter was 13. As Peter Lane got older and Otto was working in Hollywood, he did some odd jobs. He was a building and engineering contractor in the 70s, then went into furniture and reproduction of classic antiques. first uh, company I really built was a furniture manufacturing company. Really? Okay. And uh, we did buy some antiques and out of Europe. You know, every year I'd go to Europe and buy a container. and So that sort of made for a fun two or three weeks every year doing that. His brother Mark is actually an antique dealer. But the impetus to start Safari West came to Peter years before these two jobs. In grammar school, they were pruning the palm trees and a nest of barn owls fell out of that tree and fell on the ground. I got the guys to put the baby barn owls in a box and I took the box home and I had my mother go down and buy beef heart and chicken and fed them outside. and. All of a sudden, you know, one at a time, they'd fly away. He also had some homing pigeons as a kid and really got into birds. But it wasn't until the late 1960s, when his father Otto worked on Doctari, when Peter saw many animals up close. And so I, I was on the set of that show a lot and, you know, got exposed to a lot of animals. And that was my first real interest, it was probably Doctari. Yeah. But something tragic happened that put Peter's 50-year love for animals in jeopardy. Hi, this is Kent Porter with the Press Democrat on Porter Creek Road, just east of Safari West. Uh, evacuations going on at Safari West and Porter Creek Road. Fire has jumped. On October 7, 2017, a large fire decimated the mountains of Santa Rosa in Napa Valley. It was called the Tubbs Fire. It was headed straight for Safari West, and Peter Lang was determined to save everything that night. I had one extraordinary night uh, where I did some things that were very necessary to be done, and that was during a fire, and uh, you know, I was really glad when the morning came and we were here. I am not a hero. Yeah. That, that, that is pretty clear to me. He then points up above my head, gesturing behind me. Now, I will say that over your shoulder, is my home ranch, and I did watch it burn as I was down here. So that was that was a pretty. It was a big deal, but you know, I was so busy, I didn't really have much time to reflect and think about anything yeah. at that time. Their 4,000 square foot dream home sat up on a cliff overlooking the park. Thankfully, everyone was safe, but a lifetime of collections were lost in that fire. Both Peter and Otto were collectors in their own way. Peter loved expensive rare minerals. And for Otto, it was things he was a part of, his photographs and movies. My dad was a collector of objects, and I became a collector of objects and had a lot of his wonderful stuff, including a photo collection of slides that he took starting in the 30s. And I, I, there were thousands of photos. In Otto's life journey, he traveled to around 100 countries and took many photos in each place. The only continent he didn't travel to was Antarctica. In 1958, Otto won the grand prize in the World Photography Contest for a photo of a man in Sri Lanka. 
Otto also had a collection of posters. Probably one of the last things he collected, he tried to get a theater poster for every movie that he made. These were big, you know, theater marquee posters in beautiful condition, and, and he had really done it. That all burned. It just shows how linked material culture is to our everyday well-being. Objects, no matter how old or how few, represent how we live our lives. Sometimes we collect things we made, or objects that other people crafted. The tangible memories of Otto's life as a kid in Yugoslavia all the way to a film producer in California was lost in that fire. What wasn't lost was Otto Lang's legacy. Uh, he, he, was, he was never great at making money, okay? but he was very good at research and talking to people and getting people to help him do something. Otto detailed most of his filming ventures for his 20 or so films he worked on in Bird of Passage. For each drama film, especially if it was a religious or historical one, he would scout out locations trying to find the perfect match for the shot. Otto Lang and his son Peter were both entrepreneurial educators in their own respects. Realizing that a country needed guidance in the sport of skiing, Otto Lang opened up ski schools and made instructional films. For Peter, it was the revolutionary business practice to open a new type of animal wildlife park that North America hadn't seen before. I was just as inspired from Otto Lang's skiing and filming history as I was returning to his son's animal park 14 years later. Another memory of Safari West came back to me. I remembered answering all the questions when I went on a kid ranger walk there, thinking that I was going to work with animals one day. It's the only business of its type in the United States. And we've had many, many South Africans and East Africans come here numerous times to get their Africa fix. But, you know, you talk about making changes in people's lives. I mean, we, we've had five kids who started out here as volunteers that are now veterinarians. It's fun to see where people have gone. I wake up every day because I do this for a living. Yeah. And I'm really glad that I'm a part of it. And I get great pleasure out of seeing, you know, people progress. It's, uh, it's been wonderful and it's a great career to have done. There were many times I thought how similar Peter was to his father in this interview. But I also learned how true that was for me and my dad, looking over at him holding the boom mic, supporting this show in any way he could. This was Otto Lang to his sons, being the most reliable father he could be, even when his work demanded more than his family could take. As we wrapped up our interview, I took a picture next to Peter outside, and I asked him to sign a piece of paper. He signed it just like his father did in the book. Best wishes, Peter Lang. It was an episode of Signatures, from Otto Lang on the top of the ski, the personal one in his book, to his son's name, showing a 120-year history that I could never have imagined. It was an amazing journey to be on, from northern Michigan, Colorado, the Austrian Alps, Scandinavia, Hollywood, then to a safari park in California. These signature Groswald skis have taken us for a ride. It was great to hear the history of skiing from South Asia and the incredible stories of Otto Lang and his son Peter.
Thank you for joining us on another Object Obscura adventure, where every object has a story. This was a production of the Obscurity Podcast Network. Thank you to Seth Mejia from the International Skiing History Association. They have a skiing history magazine that is published bi-monthly. You can go to their website, skiinghistory.org, to read more about Otto Lang and subscribe to their magazine. You can get Bird of Passage on Amazon if you want to read it. I would highly recommend it. Thank you so much to Peter Lang from Safari West for letting me hear your stories. Of course, go to Safari West website, safariwest.com, and get a ticket to go there. It will be a life-changing experience. Thank you to Aphrodite Caserta and Nancy Lang for arranging the time for me to come up to Safari West. Thank you to John Forson, Otto's adopted grandson, for the use of his 1990s interview with Otto. Thank you to Liz Gillibald and Becky Holden from the Colorado Business Hall of Fame for letting me use Jerry Groswald's 2005 interview. Thank you to Lisa at Antiquities Warehouse for being patient with the purchase and questions about the skis. Special thanks to all the other historians and writers I emailed. Dana Mathios at the Colorado Sports Museum Hall of Fame, Kirby Gilbert, Dave Moffitt, Richard Allen, Greg Detrinko, and Peter Daly. The door is open. If you know who these skis belong to, or if you're the grandson who gave these skis away in Michigan, then send me an email. Maybe there can be a part two of this episode. This was an Anchor Distributed Podcast, produced by me and my dad, Ben Hess. Written, edited, scored, mixed, and fact-checked by me. The theme song is Behind the Walls by my great friend, Nathany. Check out her amazing music on Spotify and Apple Music. All other song and archival credits are in the description. Go to Apple Podcasts or iTunes and give us a rating. I love feedback. It's honestly what helps the show get better every week. You can also give us a donation. There's a PayPal donation button on our website, object-obscura.com. Anything helps us to investigate more amazing stories in the future. We hope that we can travel to meet each person face-to-face in future episodes. Want to reach out to us? Well, send me a message on my email, thatcher at object-obscura.com. You can also go to Facebook at Object Obscura Podcast, Instagram at object.obscura, and Twitter at Object Obscura. You can message me about any object you want discussed on the show or about anything obscure. I will post all the pictures of this episode's object and the people you heard voices from on each platform. For next week's episode, we'll be talking about schools. Not skiing ones, though. We'll be educated about the history of education from someone at the Smithsonian. You end up with what's worse is little boys and some little girls have these pen knives. See you then.